Kia ora and welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. And in this episode we're speaking with Lee Winston, um, who has embarked upon his own range of wine called Untitled, um, just into its first season. Um, so we have a chat with Lee about um, his progress into the wine industry and how he got to be doing um, what he's doing today. So right now let's go have a chat with Lee. So hi Lee. Hi Boris, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, nice to nice to have you in here, thanks for coming in. And um, let me just move this, I can't really see you, hang on, that's a bit better. Um, yeah, so yeah, you, you've um, started a new venture fairly fairly recently. That's right, yeah, Untitled yeah. Wines. Um, yeah, I wanted to do something different, so yeah. came up essentially with three multi-regional, multi-varietal, multi-vintage blends, a, a yep. red one, a white one, and a, and a pink one. Yeah, good, good. But you've um, you've been involved in wine for some time now, haven't you? Yeah, for, I suppose, 2000, 2006 was when I did my postgraduate degree in, in enology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so however many years that is, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> 13 yeah. years, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And did you sort of go straight into that? Was it something you'd always had in your mind or had in your mind for a while that that was the path you, you were quite keen on heading down? Yeah, not really. So I guess like a lot of people in the industry my path into wine wasn't a direct one um but it was doing winemaking was something that kind of sat in the back of my mind uh for us for a few years before I actually uh ended up studying winemaking um I guess my earliest sort of memories of wine was was growing up in England at my grandparents house right uh for I guess Sunday lunches we'd often go around there and they'd always have wine at the dinner table, so wine always, I always had a strong connection between wine and conversation and family and good times and, and food. And I always liked the sort of, um, I guess the, the sort of sort of ritual and ceremony that, that went along with wine. Um, so when my grandparents were drinking red wine, they'd often open it a few hours beforehand to let it breathe and they'd put it next to the agar or the radiator to bring it up to temperature. And, right, okay. and there's often a bit of a battle to get the cork out. You know, the men would try to get the cork out and they'd have different cork screws and, yes. and whatnot. And then as, as kids, we were allowed to serve the wine to the adults and you'd always serve the ladies first, you know, and then... Nice, so there was, at, so there was a real ritual around yeah. it, a real ceremony. And, yeah. and the thing I noticed, even at young age, I noticed with wine was it always, compared to other beverages, it always kind of stimulated a conversation. Like, mm. you know, when you poured the glass, you know, the adult would taste it and they would... They'd, comment on it you know whether they liked it or it was too sharp or it was nice and smooth or fruity whatever mm. um but you never got that when they were drinking beer or gin or tea no. you know so yeah. it's yeah uh, yeah i kind of like this fact that, that wine yeah created conversation and i always associated it with food and family and, and good times yeah nice yeah yeah good, es- good essentially and sorry where did you say you were when 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 you were when so, yeah sorry so I, I grew up in england right yep and um so what well, sort of wine? In, in, do you know what sort of wine it was? Or oh, can't back remember. then, you know, this sort of in the eighties. I don't French really know, but something. I know um, later my grandmother really liked sort of full-bodied Aussie reds. Right. Okay. Um, but no, nothing special. It's normally you know generic Southeast Australia sort of blends, typically yeah. from Riverina or somewhere like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my grandfather liked the sweeter sort of uh, German style. Okay. Wines. Yes. Yeah. 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 So they weren't connoisseurs, but they they like. They just, certainly had an appreciation. Yeah, they had an appreciation. Know, they liked drinking was, wine just as. as Part of, part of meal, meal time, yes. Yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's that's a that's a that's a strong early yeah. you know, childhood memory. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you um you obviously left England at some stage. Yeah. So my family emigrated to to Queensland when I was about twelve. So not really a wine 
producing area. Although there is wine in Queensland, but I, I grew up in a small seaside town about yep. four hours north of, of Brisbane. And I guess around that time, I guess my next earliest memory of wine was on a swimming trip. I was about 14 and we were on a swimming trip in Kingaroy and I uh, had an assistant coach who was in one evening was drinking a glass of Australian Lambrusco and she gave me a taste and I, I really, really liked it. You know, it was sweet, it was frothy, it was fruity and... And uh, and uh, I really enjoyed it. So I thought, oh yeah, this wine is actually can taste all right. Right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. She was probably only eighteen or nineteen herself, and probably shouldn't have been giving yeah. me uh, <laughs> wine to drink. But, but yeah, there you are. Won't mention names. Um, okay. Yeah. Cool. And then, um, so did you sort of do a few other things after you finished? Yes. Yeah, so then yeah, I let you know. Left um, as soon as I finished school, I left home, moved to Brisbane, and uh, ended up doing a. Um, a Bachelor of Applied Science, majoring in Sport and Exercise Science. Mm-hmm. So then, I guess my next sort of interest in wine kind of developed while I was doing that study, and, and nu- nutrition was, I guess, a, a large part of that degree. And, and started learning about things like the French paradox and and the health benefits from consuming red wine in particular on a, on a regular basis. So I kind of became interested in, in drinking wine regularly, as just as part of my sort of everyday diet and. So I started buying wine, but just at the cheaper end, you know, a lot of cask wine, a lot of cheap sort of wine. I probably wouldn't spend more than 10 bucks on a bottle, you know, and I was, sure. I was a student. I only wanted a glass or two in the, in the evenings, you know, so, so it's the, sort of the cheaper end of, of wine. And, um, and as it turns out, that's not the healthiest wine. <laughs> that sort of cask wine isn't the healthiest wine. Yeah. You know, if, if you're drinking wine for health reasons, you need yeah. sort of fuller bodied, more tannic, yeah. traditionally made wines rather than your smoother sort of cask wine types, yeah well yeah. it's a part of your trialing wasn't it yeah exactly so yeah, yeah your studies so, yeah good yeah and then even, even while i was at uni i did a couple of trips sort of backpacking around around europe and and it just so happened when i was on these trips that i i met sort of flying winemakers that had just done vintages in you know, one had done a vintage in italy another had done a vintage in croatia and they're, they're just aussie people working in these sort of foreign countries with different cultures and i thought oh, that sounds like that'd be a really cool thing to do you know and it's kind of sat in my mind for a while and and i remember after one trip i i looked at doing uh, you know studying winemaking because until then it hadn't really occurred to me as a career path sort of growing up in uh you know coastal queensland (laughs) you know a career in the wine industry doesn't isn't really staring you at the face in in the face like it might be for someone from you know that's grown up in blenheim or barossa or bordeaux you know yeah um so I started thinking about winemaking as a potential career and I, I looked at courses and there was one, obviously, Roseworthy in South Australia, and but I'd missed the enrolment date. So I was like, oh, I don't, you know, I didn't, in hindsight, I probably should have gone and done vintage somewhere, you know, and got a bit of experience. But, I, but you know, I was having a good time in Brisbane. It was about the year 2000 and, you know, there's a good buzz going around um, with the Sydney Olympics and stuff and had a good group of friends so I just carried on doing my the degree that I was doing even though I wasn't really that into it and um, yeah I guess once I finished that degree I went over to England and I worked in cardiac investigations for for a number of years mm-hmm. and did a bit more travel and came back to Australia and was working in health promotion in for Diabetes Australia and I was living on the Gold Coast surfing every day and I was trying to get into. I was working with a couple of dietitians, so I was trying to get into more of the healthy, healthy lifestyle. And again, that interest in drinking wine as part of that healthy lifestyle kind of reignited. And I wanted to learn more about wine, so I started buying wine magazines and stuff. And mm-hmm. but I kind of developed a, a bit of a 
dislike, I suppose, for, for some wine critics. Because they'd often write about, oh, this winemaker, he's, he's over-extracted or he's over-oaked or he's done too much of this or not enough of that. And I kept thinking... Well, what, what what do you know about the wine? You know, the winemaker, one of, he might have wanted a really over-extracted wine or she might have wanted a really oaky wine or she might have wanted a wine like this or like that. So I, I kind of didn't really trust the advice um, being given by wine critics. I don't know why. It's just yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> um, and I, and I kind of, so I figured, oh, the only real way to know about wine is to, is to learn about winemaking. Um so I remember one day I was at my job uh, with Diabetes Australia and I was, yeah, wasn't feeling particularly satisfied. So I Googled, or I don't know if Google's around then, but I did a web search for, for winemaking courses and Curtin University had started doing a postgraduate diploma uh, over in Margaret River. So I'd never been to Margaret River, but it sounded ideal because there's good surf there and, and apparently the wine was good, even though I'd never tasted any at that stage. So yeah, I handed in my notice and Grabbed a mate and loaded up my 1990 Subaru station wagon and drove across the Nullarbor. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> and so, um, okay. And and what what so got there and mm. got into. Um, so I was really naive. Like I went into. Like I hadn't even been in a, in a winery. I just knew I liked drinking the stuff and yeah. wanted to change a career path. And and I think I was in my late twenties at the time. Right. So I thought, oh, if I'm going to do it now, it's a good time. So yes. I didn't have a partner and or, or a family or anything. So. So yeah, I went across there and and uh, managed to get a really good job straight away with, with Howard Park Wines, which are one of the good wineries over there, and mm-hmm. sort of cut my teeth with them, and also worked for for Kate Mantel, another another well, one of the founding wineries in in Margaret River, mm-hmm. and um, and yeah, after I finished my studies, I went and did a vintage in McLaren Vale with uh, Coriol, another sort of good good producer, particularly with the Italian varietals, and and then did the whole sort of. Um, two vintages a year thing going between Australia and, and Europe worked in Italy a couple of times in France and did vintage in, in Hunter Valley and, and in Tasmania um, and also the, yeah the, fir- the first time I went to, to Europe I kind of the whole world of wine sort of opened up to me so, so even when studying winemaking in, in, in Margaret River we weren't really exposed that much to, to European wines you know they sh- might have shown us a Bordeaux and they might have shown us a, a you know a Chardonnay from Burgundy and a Pinot from Burgundy but yeah well, wasn't really exposed to that many European wines and not that many European wines were being bought into Australia I guess at the time because of the exchange rate and the way the market was and and, and the ones that were would have been expensive and, and out of my price range anyway so so I kind of got to Europe and um I'm like, geez, there's this massive world of wine out there and varieties I've never even heard of. And and um, somehow talking to someone, I think I was doing vintage with in Italy, they they mentioned the, the Wine and Spirit Education Trust program. So, yeah, you know, I tried learning about wine my, just doing it myself, but, you know, I, th- I felt I needed a bit of structure to my drinking. Have, you know, I'd just be going to the off-license and grabbing heaps of random bottles and drinking them. So I thought by doing the, the WSCT program would, would at least give me some some structure so I initially did the level three certificate just by correspondence and then I ended up doing the diploma and and it worked out really well so you could do the diploma uh, through Bermondsey through the through the London office in Bermondsey um, you could do it by what they call block release so you do a couple of weeks of just lectures nine to five you're going in tasting wines people talking um, every day and that kind of fitted in perfectly between to fill the gaps between vintages. 
so generally there'd be a release at the start of a block release at the start of the year and then again in the middle and then again at the end so i was able to to do the diploma in in about 18 months i think normally it takes most people two years but right kind of flew through that and yeah. just really really enjoyed it and london was is a great place to learn about wine and well wines of the world because there's so much on offer there and and there's so many trade tastings you know like any day of the week you could pretty much go to to a regional tasting yeah you know the, for free you know if you're in the trade so it's uh is a really good place to learn about wine yeah. and, and open up your eyes about wines of the world for right. sure yeah. right okay okay yeah and then um i guess while i was there i was kind of between vintages and i was due to head back and do another vintage for tamar ridge in um in tasmania and then then i accidentally i guess and unexpectedly fell in love uh with a kiwi girl so uh she was in in europe yeah in, in london europe? in london oh, yeah, okay, so yes. she, yeah so um so um yeah i basically decided to <laughs> decided to stay to stay in london and i'd after i finished the diploma I, even though it was like really hard and i learned a lot i still felt like i didn't know much about wine so i ended up enrolling in the in the master of wine program and while i was doing that i met a guy who worked for the international wine challenge which is a big wine competition based in london and and he kind of said, oh, look, if you want to stay in London, I can get you a job, you know. So, um, so I'm like, yeah, sweet. And at the same time, there was some um, seminars in Bordeaux that the Institute of Masters of Wine were, were running. So I thought, okay, well, I f might flag vintage. I'll stay in London. I can be with this girl I've fallen in love with and I can keep learning about wine. So, so that was pretty awesome. Really enjoyed living in London and working at the International Wine Challenge. Yeah, again, just got exposed to so many, so many wines from, from around the world. It was it was excellent and then um and again through the um doing the master of wine program i met um an irish guy who was working for australian vintage um you do like the mcguigan's brand they're quite got quite a presence in the in the uk market and they they were bottling they were shipping their wine over in bulk to the uk and bottling it in the, in the uk and and they needed so the bot where they were bottling it they they had a lot of beer sort of experience but they didn't really know much about wine and australian vintage wanted them to have someone with with wine knowledge um so he managed to line me up a job with them so i was um i guess i was their enologist and, and ran a few sort of like quality control trials for them to make sure they were sort of bottling wine within spec and i also put th their staff through the level two the wsct level two program because a lot of their staff, they didn't know the difference between Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, or they wouldn't know how to pronounce Viognier, for example. So these these wines were turning up at their doorstep, and they wouldn't know. And a few mistakes had happened where they had, I guess, bottled wine in a condition they shouldn't have bottled, right? Just because they didn't know what that wine should taste sure. like, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, yeah, they they got me in there, and and um, yeah, that, that was that was quite a good experience, and also because of the scale of things, like you know, they had bottle. Um, we, we could bottle at that plant they could bottle um about twenty four thousand liters in an hour so like seeing those wine, wine bottles wow. just whizzing along the bottling line wow. you know it's a blur and yeah, uh, yeah it's incredible yeah wow. incredible yeah yeah that's a lot of production yeah <laughs> yeah it was all getting drunk yes <laughs> yeah that's right yeah um yeah so then after that my um my girlfriend's visa for the uk ran out so yeah, took the plunge and just moved back to New Zealand. I'd never, never been to New Zealand before, even though I grew up in Australia, and I felt quite embarrassed. I'd, 
the first place I went to in New Zealand was I uh, flew into Dunedin. My girlfriend picked me up and we drove straight to Wanaka and, you know, and it was like this beautiful, amazing place. And I'm like, oh, I've traveled all around Europe and South America and, and like, you know, this place was right on my doorstep yeah, the whole time, you know. Yeah, a few hours float away. Yeah, yeah. and then, then went to Queenstown next, and that was, oh, it was even better, you know. And it's not, it's not a bad introduction to New Zealand. Yeah, so oh, it's an excellent introduction, places. you know, and yeah. we did a tour of, you know, I went to Ripon, that was the first winery I went to right. in New Zealand, and yeah, it was, nice. yeah, incredible. Mm. Um, yeah, and then I went and met her parents who live in a place called Balclutha, which yeah. <laughs> is not quite so spectacular. <laughs> But still yeah. a very nice place, yeah, you know. Still a very and, nice and, place. and the people make the place, don't they? So yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but 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 spoiled down there. I think, yeah, for, definitely. Um, for you know, stunning vistas and yep. um, beautiful locations. Right. Okay. And so, when was this? When are we talking? So now? this was it's just after the Rugby World Cup. So um, yeah, I spent New Year's in in Wanaka for the sort of twenty eleven, twenty twelve New Year's. Okay. So yep. so start of twenty twelve really, and um, and I was lucky enough to get a job with delegates mm -hmm. so uh, as assistant winemaker and a lot of that was based on the um i think the work i'd done with this this bottling company in the uk um did a lot of work looking at sort of total package oxygen uh which delegates were sort of look, looking at as well at the same time so i knew how to use the the, the equipment to to monitor this so so that yeah they got me on board and um and i only spent a year with them i was based at the their sort of bottling facility, well, their original wineries in, in Auckland and um, their bottling facility is still there. So I, I was based there and um, and they still sent me off and did vintage down in their Hawke's Bay and Marlborough wineries, which was really good. Um, they're a great company to work for, you know, and again, the scale of things. Before that, I'd only worked for quite small small wineries or small to medium-sized wineries, but, oh, man, the Marlborough winery, you know, it had like 10, I'd never seen 10 presses in my life, but they had 10 presses, you know. <laughs> You know, and one yeah. winery is is incredible, but I guess <coughs> you know when I when I took that job, I was a little bit worried because I thought it might be a little bit like working for like a like a factory, like a Coca Cola winery, but it, it wasn't like that at all. And and the thing about having that sort of scale is you can do so many really cool, properly controlled styles um, uh, experiments and trials. Right. So. Um, you know, coming from, I guess, from a science background, you know, I like doing proper sort of trials where you can have a control and you can try different things and everything's the same and, you, and you're and you measuring just one thing and you're kind of limiting your number of variables and all, all this sort of thing. Right. And, and they can do that when you're producing that much volume, you know, you, you can get, you know, 10 different 5,000 litre tanks and try different yeasts or different enzymes or different bentonites or, or different fermentation methods, whatever, you know, and you can try these things and you can compare them and, you, and you know, it's really good for... For, for learning and improving your, your winemaking, I guess. And mm. I mm. guess the problem with smaller wineries is you, don't, you can't do that sort of thing, you know? No, you don't have that luxury of scale. Do yeah, you, you don't have that, luxury, that yeah. luxury of scale. And, mm. um, you know, you might only have a few barrels or something, you know, so you can't, you know, you've got to be a little bit more conservative in your approach. And Yeah, and, and what you do might be a little bit less conclusive, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Mm. So I worked, for, yeah, worked for them for a year um but because I had done vintages down in the Hawke's Bay and Marlborough wineries, it's going to be someone else's turn. So I was kind of like looking at doing a good year just <laughs> just doing bottling. And that didn't really excite me uh, so much. Um, so, um, and because of my partner, her, she really needs to work in a big city for, for part of her job. So kind of moving out of Auckland, you know, wasn't that much of an option. So I started looking for other jobs and I actually applied for a job for Cable Bay over on Waiheke. 
Well, I didn't get that job, but um, Neil Cully, who was the winemaker there at the time, put me forward for a job at Pleasant Valley Wines, which is where I'm currently working. Right. So I've been been there for, for the last, I think I've just done my seventh vintage. Yeah, which is out West Auckland. Which is out in, in Henderson, yeah. So mm. Pleasant Valley, um, you know, they're actually New Zealand's oldest family-owned winery. So the family's had the, uh, they, they've been on the site there since 1896 and have been making wine since since 1902. Cool. So, so yeah. what's the what's the family name? So the family name's Yellis, so an mm-hmm. old um, Croatian mm-hmm. family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, so that's pretty cool. Um, but they just focus. So the core of Pleasant Valley's business now really is is contract bottling. So we bottle probably 85 percent of the Waiheke wineries, a lot right. of the Matakana wineries, okay. most of Northland, and a few other sort of like wine brands that don't have their own sort of facilities. Right. Uh, send their wine to us, and, and we bottle it. Yeah, for them. yeah. So that must that must be quite fun then, seeing all yeah, these, um, you know, like a whole range of different, um, you know, some really great great wineries as well. Yeah, we those. do. Yeah, we get. Yeah, we we well, we virtually get the whole length and breadth of the country. You know, so we get wines from Northland, we get wines from Central Otago, we get wines from Gisborne, from Marlborough. You know, so yeah, so it's, yeah, it's really good, and I get to meet lots of people in the industry uh, as well. So that's really cool. Mm. Um, then the other part of the Pleasant Valley business is contract winemaking. So there's still a few vineyards, local vineyards around Auckland, um, where they don't have their own winery and they'll send their fruit to us and we'll, we'll make wine for them. And, mm. and a couple of the Matakana sort of vineyards do the same. Um, and we mm. finish a, a lot of wine for people as well. If people don't have refrigeration or, or filters, you know, we'll, we'll get the wine bottle ready for them right. okay. before bottling it. And so quite a, quite a sizable operation out there then. Yeah, but it's 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 at the smaller end of the spectrum, if, right. if you know what I mean. So yeah. so that smaller end for a for a contract bottler. Yeah, yeah, so you know the bottler I was working for in the UK, they could bottle you know twenty four thousand liters in an hour. We we bottle maybe seven thousand liters in a day. You right. know, like yeah. that's probably okay. our maximum capacity. Yes. Um, whereas yeah, when I was with delegates, we were doing maybe sixty thousand liters a day. I think they they might be able to do eighty thousand, but yeah. Mm. So yeah, at the smaller end of the scale, and we'll you know sometimes we'll do a single barrel bottling run for mm. some of the smaller people, you know. Right. So. Okay. So you can do quite a good, quite a nice range. Yeah. Of, um, yep, yep. Production size. Yeah. yeah. Yep. 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 So yeah, maybe forty thousand liters is the most we do, but that would take us pretty much all week to <laughs> to bottle that, you know. Whereas mm. a big company that's half a day. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, and then uh, like Pleasant Valley, they still got their own label and still make their own wine they don't have a vineyard on site anymore that all got ripped up i think the last vineyard got rubbed up in 2008 was right. the last wine to come off off the site yeah, yeah yeah and the reason because that was the one of the early regions for you know wine wine growing yeah. in, in new zealand even yeah um out, out west auckland there yeah. um and so the reason it's just dropped off is just because there are better places to to grow and yeah you know, compared to elsewhere around new zealand the I think so. Um, I mean, just talk, talking generally, like when my first two vintages there were the 13 and 14 vintage and vintages, and they, they were really good vintages. And I'm like, oh, why, why do people stop making wine in Auckland? You know, it's, you can make really good wine here, you know. Mm. And, and, then, um, and then we had sort of like 15 was a bit average, and then 16, I was like, oh, this is pretty bad. It can't get worse than this. And then we had 17 was even worse, and then 18 was even worse again. And I'm like, mm. okay, so I can see why, you know, why, why – Brancott or Montana as they were then well, I can see why they were looking for somewhere else to set up shop and why they moved to Marlborough and, yeah. and why Nolos and a lot of those other guys delegates yeah. ended up focusing on 
elsewhere. You I mean, know, it, but, you, but you can make great wine. I think Cumi River's testament to that, and even like yes. Westbrook and places like that, you know, are making really good wine. But it's it, it's more you've got to have that location as well, don't yep. you? Rather than it being a, a region that's generally good, yep. you've got to have the right little spot, you yep. know, maybe a little microclimate yeah, somewhere. Yep. Um, or, and and you've got to be committed, and you've got to be, yeah, you've got to be really committed. Yes. Yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah and. It, you know, Waiheke seems to have a bit more yep. consistency, yep. Um, but even up Matakanaway, um, you know, it's hard for them to get, yep. you know, consistently year on year. Yeah. And, um, yep. you know, I know for some of them there's some years where nothing nothing really, you know, can come out of it. Yeah. Um, mm, okay, yeah. okay. And then, um, uh, so, you know, you've been there for... Yeah, so yeah, now? 2013 was my first vintage. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, you, so you're still working there, and then alongside that you've... Um, You've bought out the Untitled brand, which yeah. you've bought a, bought a few in here today. We've got a pink blend, a white blend, and a red yeah. blend. Yeah. So, yeah, so my boss, I guess the, the family um, patriarch, um, yes, Stefan Yellis or Steffi, uh, one of the nicest guys you, you, you could ever meet. Um, yeah, he suggested that I do start doing my own thing. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, because obviously we see us because we've got so many customers, you know, I, I see how hard it can can be sort of sell it, selling wine. So I wasn't, uh, I was like, uh, oh, you know, the world doesn't really need a Mar- another Marlborough Sauvignon or an- another Central Pinot, you know, or another Oakey Chardonnay. And I thought, oh, if I'm going to do something, I need to do something different. You know, I'm just a little guy by myself. So, you know, ideally I would have loved to have found my own piece of land and planted some grapes and ha- had my own sort of vineyard and stuff. But, you know, you need fairly deep pockets to do something like that or some well hill connections, which I don't have. Um, so I needed a point of difference. Um and I started looking, I guess, or thinking about, you know, what most people in New Zealand were focusing on. And most people were focusing, I guess, on variety and, and terroir. So I'm like, well, I need to focus on something else. You know, there's nothing wrong with these, with, with varietal typicity or terroir. But I was thinking, oh, are these things necessary to make quality wine? And I was thinking about it. And, and I guess the short answer is no, you don't need terroir and you don't need varietal typicity to make good quality wine. And there's plenty of examples of of that around the world um and i I suppose you know like i guess the the production driven wines you know like champagne and port and sherry and madeira you know they're not really focused on terroir that much i mean climate i I suppose is, is is important um and they're not really focused on variety that much i mean maybe champagne you know you've got you know, some Blanc de Blancs and Blanc de Noirs and stuff, you know, so variety is a little bit important, but it's it's not the focus of the wine and, and, and same with Tuar, you know, you've got, there are some single site, I guess, champagnes like Clos de Guar, I guess, is a classic example and there's some single Quinta ports, but it's, it's that's not the focus. It's, it's mainly just about using a combination of Tuars and varieties to make a really good, complete wine, I suppose. And, mm. and I guess that's what I wanted the focus of Untitled to to be about is not I guess sort of limiting the quality potential just for the sake of doing something conventional mm-hmm. yeah right yeah, yeah. yeah right yeah so it's, so it's um, almost coming at it from the other end sort of like going okay well what, what, what's a great drinking wine yeah coming, we're, that's what we're heading out to make right yeah, yeah exactly yeah. And, and, and what what can we pull in then yeah what's available for us to pull in to make that happen and, mm. and I think one of one of my um, one of the, the key inspiration I suppose was was Penfolds Grange you know like when Max Schubert set out to, to make that 
he wasn't setting out to make a Shiraz or, or even a Barossa, Barossa wine or, or an Adelaide. Or they, were, they were in Adelaide at the time. So, you know, um, he just wanted to make the best wine he possibly could that would age for 20 years. And right. so Grange has always been a multi-regional wine. And back in the early days, it was often multi-varietal as well. And now it's generally 100% Shiraz. Right. Sometimes there's a small percentage, normally at least 90% Shiraz. Um, but, you know, Max even said, you know, he didn't really care what grape variety it was. He'd just choose the best grape varieties he had available to him uh, for any given year. And, right. and, you know, some years it was, I think one year he even made a, it was 100% Cabernet Grange, okay. you know, because they were the best yeah. grapes at, at, at the time. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Th things like that were definitely an inspiration, I guess, for for the blend. I think there's. It's, it's kind of like my career into wine. It's kind of like lots of things and like nudges that kind of pointed me into this sort of direction of doing multi-regional, multi-varietal, yeah, multi-vintage. Yeah, cool, and and, cert and certainly something a bit different. And so, so what? What? Um, so these are the the latest. Um, yeah, so I'm on one release. Uh, you know, so I released yep. them in November yep. last year. Oh, because this is your first. So, so it's my fir yeah. first release. Okay. Yeah, great. And uh, so what? So what's in the white then for this one? So, so that's. I mean, you can go onto the way if you buy a bottle. And <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess I, I wanted to try and be a, a little bit original with these wines, but I'm not a very creative guy. So I basically stole a lot of my ideas from from other people. So so there's no variety or regional or even vintage information on on um, okay. on the label. Right. And this is something for most non-vintage champagnes. That, that's, that's the case for them as well. And and and. A lot of wine nerds want to know what's in yes. Champagne and, and Krug in particular, like a lot of people wanted to know the composition of, of Krug. It's a Krug, obviously they weren't allowed to put the information on the label, so they put a lot code on the back and you can go onto Krug's website, type in the lot code and it tells you all the different villages where the grapes came from, the different vintages and the different varieties and all the percentages. So I've, I've basically done the same for, for my wine. So there's no varietal information, no regional information. because so I, I guess I just wanted the focus... At, just to be about the wine as well, rather than right tr tr people having a preconceived idea about it. So, right, yeah. so have you got? We're just um, we're just looking at the um, bottle now. Have you got something on here? Yeah. So if you look on the on the back label there, there's a, there's a wee lock code. Oh, okay. Yep. Cool. Yep. Yep. A letter and um, some numbers. Yep. Yeah. So the, cool. uh, the lock code gives you a clue as well. So 18 is the key vintage, or the first two digits are the key vintage in there. The second two digits are the number of varieties in there, and the third two digits are the number of regions. Right. That okay. The, the, the grapes are sourced okay, from. Okay. So yeah. yep, we've got um, 18. Um, 0604, so yeah. 2018, six varietals and from four regions. Yeah. yeah nice. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's cool. That's yeah, so cool. the white was a bit of a weird one. You know, like I really like um, white Bordeaux, you know, and I wanted to make that sort of style, but, but my Sauvignon Blanc ferment that I had in barrel kind of got a bit stuck and it wasn't really working in the in the blend that well. So so it's actually, it's um, still quite a bit of Sav in there, but it's predominantly Pinot Gris. Mm -hmm. That blend with some Sav, some Albarino, a little bit of Chardonnay, a little bit of Gewurz, and a little bit of Viognier. Right, yeah. cool. Yeah, nice. So nice. that one I call, I say it's a bit like Jacinda Ardern, that wine. It's it's like youthful, it's attractive, it's friendly, it's, it'll, it's going to appeal to a lot of people, and it's it's not going to offend that many people either. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not the best <laughs> analogy, you, but you know. Yeah, it's, well, just, yeah see, what, you, you haven't produced a Winston, uh, Winston no, no. Peters wine. <laughs> 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 that might be the opposite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a bit harder to sell. 
potentially. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's um, that's very cool. And so you, there's the three three blends, yeah. Yes, and um, like the, the the pink one is just a rosé, but I called it pink because I've always found it weird that we use English words to describe wine that's red and wine that's white, but we use a French word to describe wine that's that's pink. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I just found it a bit strange. So I call I call it a pink blend. Yeah. Um, and that one I was kind of. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche. Everyone's trying to do, I guess, a, um, a Provence-style rosé these days. That's, that's the trend. And and um, and when I was thinking about what I was going to do, I remember reading something from Master of Ceremonies. I don't know if you know that that wine brand. So they had a wee statement saying how they thought the New Zealand wine industry was a bit boring and a bit stuffy and they wanted to do something different. And so they, their whole packaging and the way they're taking it to market is, yeah, really is quite different. But essentially, their wine's the same as what a lot of other people are doing. So it's like a, I think theirs is a Merlot, maybe a Gisborne Merlot made in a Provence style, inverted commas, you know, meaning that it's pale pink and dry, you know. Yeah. So that kind of got me thinking like, okay, so, you know, they want to do something different. I want to do something different, but they're kind of just doing it different from a marketing side. I kind of want to do something different, maybe from a bit of a winemaking side too. So, so I had a bit of a think about what they do in Provence. To, to make their wines the way they are. It's not just that they're pale and pink. You know, they're wines from Provence. To me, they're, you know, they're quite textural wines. They've always got really soft red fruit, but they kind of got this backbone of texture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not high acid wines. They're kind of, I guess for rosés, they're fairly full body. You probably call them medium body, but, um, you know, but they still got a sense of elegance to them. And I think one way they can achieve that, obviously the varieties play a big, or play a big part in that, but they, 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 most most wineries there, they blend probably three or four great varieties, maybe even five. I think by Appalachian rules, they're allowed to blend up to seven great varieties, you know, to make their wine. So, so to me, like blending was an integral pr- part of of producing a Provence style rosé. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's not just about colour and being dry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's what I did with these. So it's, nice. uh, I mean, it's four, four red grape varieties in my pink one and, and three white grape varieties, uh, but I blended them together and, um, uh, finished off fermentation in some neutral oak to, to help try and get that sort of textural complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And then the red. And then the red, yeah, a lot of that inspiration came from, um, came from a couple of places really, um, Shadow Nerf de Pat being one, so Shadow Nerf de Pat, I guess they're famous for doing a or being allowed to blend up to thirteen grape varieties. And I thought, well, I don't think anyone's doing that sort of in New Zealand. So I thought, oh, so that was kind of one goal. We, I guess, it was a little bit just trying to hit numbers. So I was keen to kind of hit thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other inspiration, even kind of before I came up with, doing okay, so the, just yeah, I'm just looking at the back, yeah, of the, look, um, the, the red blend and. Um, so we've got seventeen, thirteen, oh five. So two thousand seventeen, you do, you have hit the thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Varieties, so I got the thirteen varieties uh, um, from the five different regions. Right. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So that one's actually quite a good footprint in New Zealand. There's a, only a tiny amount of grapes from Northland, and there's grapes from Auckland, Marlborough, and Central Otago. So it's like the full length. Yeah. Of 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 the country. Oh, that's good. Well, um, you, you've certainly. Um, You've certainly come up with something unique in the in the New Zealand. Well, yeah, that was a goal. They're so. kind of unique, but they're kind of stealing ideas from from other people. And um, like with with a red blend, I was really inspired by um, you know I like reading a lot of old wine books, and and I guess back in the day, 
um, you know, a lot of people listening might might know this already, but um, like Hermitage, where they grow, you know, really full-bodied Syrah, used to get blended into a lot of Bordeaux wines and a lot of Burgundian wines to, to um, you know, give them a bit more body. And um, Shadow Palmer in Bordeaux, they've started doing it. They call it a historic 19th century blend. So it's a declassified wine because they can't call it Bordeaux because it's got some Hermitage in there. And I kind of really like that idea of blending, you know, Syrah or Shiraz with Bordeaux varieties. And it's something they do fairly regularly in Australia. But I also like the idea of blending Syrah with Pinot, which I guess they used to do a little bit um, back in back in the day in France. Yes, um, I mean that's a good point, isn't it? We, you know, we we, we think things are, are as they are, yeah. Um, but they haven't always been that way. You know, yeah, they no, have, they have evolved and changed, and there's different yeah. reasons why they are what they are yeah. now. You know, um, and, you know, and, and not always just about the taste of the wine. No. You know, there's different sort of you know politics around y- what yeah, you could oh, do and couldn't politics, do and yeah. things. So, um, yeah, and I think um, y- yeah, it's it, it, it. I think it's important. Um, point that it's not necessarily the blends we have are not necessarily but just about because that's the best flavour no. the best wine there was all sorts of other things that went into play and yeah. I think it's real interesting that you're going back and looking well what do people used to do exactly yeah. maybe it wasn't changed because of anything about flavour or experience yeah. and so why let's have, go back yeah. and have a look at that and, yeah yeah, very cool. yeah exactly um, yeah I find it you know this whole um, sort of fo- extreme focus I suppose on terroirs I think a fairly fairly recent thing and um you know you look back at old wine books and they'll talk about you know chateau lafitte that had been hermitaged or had shiraz from from hermitage added to it would fetch a more a higher price in the market than than lafitte that was unadulterated you know so like yes i guess consumers didn't care so much back then so they they wanted the wine that tasted better and the one that had had the hermitage added to it tasted better than the one that hadn't so they didn't even know it wasn't uh, you know a uh, I guess a wine that was true to its terroir, yeah. they did yeah. mine because it yeah. tasted better. It tasted better, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, and, and a big driver to for, for all of this was because just wanting to actually, um, you know, have ownership of yeah. that name, wasn't it? Yeah. So if you wanted to have ownership of that name, whether it's Champagne, yeah. then you had to have the structure around that. So yeah, how exactly. Could you, how could you say to somebody, you're not champagne? Yeah. There had to be, well, there's some structure yeah, around exactly, that. Yeah. And you couldn't then go and contravene that because yeah. then you weren't champagne. Yeah, so yeah. Um, it sort of locked them in, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's to, lots of politics around the borders. A, certain way. A, lot, yes. a lot of the borders are, you know, around wine regions aren't terroir driven. They're politically driven, right. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> the line on the map. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, yeah, that's great. Well, um uh, th- well, you know, we're excited. We're excited to, to try those. I think it's um, I think it's a great idea, and look forward to um, to how they how they sort of come out over the next few years. Yeah, yeah great. That's very good. And we we finish on the uh, question um, that if you could have one glass of wine uh, with somebody yeah. um, in some place, yeah. um, you know, who and who and what and where would that where would that be? Yeah, I mean that's that's a really hard question because there's. It is a hard question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You might, there the might be there might be a number, can, and you can just go. Well, yeah. this is this is one of the people and one of the wines. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I love I like wine history, so you know, um, you know, someone like Jean Louis Chav, you know, I'd love to have a glass of wine with him because they their family's been making wine since the 1400s, and where it's you know, and whereabouts are they? I said based in the Northern Rhone, so Hermitage. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and even. You know, Hubert de Villon, you know, of Domaine de la Romney Conti, you know, it'd be an amazing person to have a glass of wine with. But 
if 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 I was open to anything, I'd um I'd like to go to the wedding in Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine. Yeah, because apparently that was the wine of the of the night. You know, it blew the socks off the MC. You know, you couldn't believe it because you, you know back then they had served the worst wine last, but you yeah. know this wine was the best wine of the night. So I'd really like to see what that wine see what it was <laughs> see what that wine what, what, what it tasted like. You know, yeah. some weirdo blend. Yeah, yeah. Was it yeah? Was it a blend or was it single variety? Yeah, because yeah. you know, Jesus he could have made any wine he wanted. You know, so I would be really keen to to know what sort of wine Jesus chose to make out yeah, of water yeah. I reckon that'd yeah, be really interesting yeah, yeah. <laughs> and why yeah and why <laughs> oh that's really good oh well thanks Lee it's been great great having you in thanks for thanks for coming oh, along it's been a pleasure thanks cool guys. and um, yeah as I say we look forward to um, seeing what comes out of Untitled over the next years yeah great okay well, great thank you very much cheers bye now bye <laughs> we've been speaking with Lee Winston from Untitled Wines Um, who's also doing some work with Pleasant Valley Winery out in the west of Auckland. Uh, If you'd like to find out more about Lee and his Untitled Wines, you can go to untitled.nz. Be sure to check out some of the other New Zealand wine podcasts and also go to podcast.nz to check out some other great podcasts on a variety of topics. Uh, You can follow us on Instagram and we look forward to your company again very shortly. Hey, Kona mai. Bye for now.